Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from Brooklyn, New York. Don't forget to check out our other episodes and please subscribe to the show. Out of all the experiences that produce transcendence, which you can measure with skin conductivity, you know, getting goosebumps, self-report, this kind of expansion of the chest feeling, it, that can be kind of quantified. And there are a range of experiences that can produce that. The two most universally reliable across cultures were any experience of grandeur in nature, so things like a beautiful sunrise or a total solar eclipse, but more than anything else, music. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with New York singer, songwriter, and producer Joan Wasser, AKA Joan is Policewoman. Joan's prolific career releasing records spans four decades and includes collaborations with luminaries like Lou Reed, Rufus Wainwright, and Anoni and the Johnsons. Many of Joan's lyrics reveal a hunger for transformative experience, and 2011's The Magic is no exception when she sings, looking for the alchemy to release me from the maze I am making myself. Also joining us is celebrated essayist and sometimes science historian, Maria Popova. Maria is the creator of the immensely popular blog, The Marginalian, which she started in 2006 under the name Brain Pickings. Maria's essays draw from her, quote, extended marginalia on the search for meaning across science, art, philosophy, and the various other tendrils of human thought and feeling. Several of Maria's essays express an abiding reverence for music and endeavor to uncover how it is that, in her words, music casts its spell on us. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is The Magic, what science can tell us about the spellbinding power of music. Hi, Joan and Maria. Thanks for coming on the show. What's up, Matt? How fun. Yeah. So, Joan, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I think this song is about trying to get out of your own way. Is that right? Absolutely. Do you remember what, what was going on in your life when you wrote it? Um, not specifically, but it was, you know, I have in my life had a lot of obsessive thinking, obsessive thoughts, something I call like spinning, mm. like the brain just not being able to get something out of the way. Like it, I'll just keep coming back to it. I'll think I have made peace with it for a moment and then it'll just smack me back and it, there it is. I wrote this song in the middle of like a particularly obsessive thinking period. And, you know, when I write music, it's often an attempt to piece through something, untangle something, figure something out. So that's what I was doing in writing the song. I mean, so you're appealing to something outside of yourself for some kind of deliverance and you call it the magic or alchemy. What is it that you're describing? It doesn't necessarily have to be outside of myself. I'm like asking to be led through this process of 
finding peace and my mind finding serenity. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that's going to come from. Right. In, in the song, I talk about like, I'm tempted to act out in some way to cover up the feelings, to cover up the spinning, the obsessive thinking. And I don't want to do that. I want to be relieved of the thinking in some other some other way that I've done in the past, which is act out in various ways to just crush it. Because, uh, of course, that's momentary. And then it just returns often worse. But, you know, I'll say this. One of the things that I like about it is it's, it's not reduced to like a good or bad. It's like you mm-hmm. you're taking ownership of both the light and dark within. You know what I mean? It's not like mm-hmm. Joan acting out is bad Joan and delivered Joan is good Joan. It's I am divine. I am Leviathan. Um, my favorite line, what sums up best what you just described is I want to do better than to fight this life because it's a dream. It's actually I want to do better than survive this life because it's a dream. Like I don't want to just survive. I want to be completely free. I don't want to be half free. I want to be completely free. Well, one, I need to fire my research team because I don't know how I saw that as fight. Two. Yeah, well, there's a lot of wrong lyrics online, as you might know. Well, yeah, now I do. But are you saying when you're self-destructive, you're incapable of experiencing life as a dream? Really? I'm... I'm saying I can feel what life could be without this constant grind or like at the top, you know, I'm like talking to myself like I don't want to tell you me. I'm like talking to myself like I don't want to tell you what you already know. It's like I'm trying to talk myself out of it, out of this obsessive thinking. Right. And then this whole thing where it's like Um, And I I find that I'm face to face with none other than me. I realize I'm talking to myself about it. You know, I've got the mirror up against the marquee that reads, I am fine. I am divine. It's like that outward facing person is like, I'm chill. Everything's cool. So it's 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 um, more facade, less mantra. Exactly. Okay. well, Maria, I'd like to ask you to speak to the same thing. I mean, because. Wonder and curiosity are so central to your daily work as a writer with the marginalian. Are you how are you able to navigate a state of mind that might distract or invite apathy, something like depression or rage or anxiety? Mm. Well, wonder to me is about the quality of attention we pay to things. Because anything attended to fully is wonderful, literally full of wonder. I mean, even now looking at the blue light in the back of the studio on the on the wood falling the color of Uranus, I mean, incredible. But it requires attending to it. And of course, we go through life tuning out 98% of what's going on around us because our attention is needed for much more urgent survival things. And... I think wonder is kind of a discipline, the discipline of attending fully to things. And of course, uh, things get in the way, things that you listed. I mean, your the demands on your time, your mental health, your level of hunger. I mean, we're such kind of biomechanical, neurochemical puppets that are governed by all these very basic primal things that it, it takes a real effort to summon the level of attention needed to find wonder 
or to see wonder in the old sense of discover, to uncover what's already there. It's refreshing to to hear you say that because we can only compare our insides to someone else's outsides, but I subscribe to the marginalian and it just seems it creates the image that you wake up in a state of wonder, you know, and that you're able to mm. harness that. Well, I mean, the writing is my practice of summoning that level of attention. The writing itself is the record of the practice. So I, I do it for me in order to be able to pay that quality of attention to the world. And what you read is just a record of that effort. So it's not that I wake up with it. It's that I wake up and decide how am I going to attend today? Not for nothing, but I, I feel like there's a real symmetry, I think, in how you both work. There's a generosity in how you infuse your own experience and the way that you share your gifts with your audience. Thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, that's a huge compliment because I love the way Maria does it. And I love the way Joan does it. And I definitely, when we met, we were like sort of instantly like checking out the details of like the bark of the tree next to us. And it was like, mm. right, we're supposed to be friends. <laughs> and I mean, since we're talking about wonder, I will say there's something really lovely about being in the presence of another consciousness that sees the world with just enough overlap, but also very differently. And Joan's very awake to to the beauty and the joy of reality in ways that I'm not always, that doesn't come so easily to me. Um, and it's really wonderful to be kind of magnified in that way, the contagion of, of another mind that's kindred, but, but different. I thank you very much. That means so much. All of these words are like overwhelming. I mean, I know both of you know me personally. So uh, the fact that at certain times I've visited places in my own mind and psyche and body that have been very uh, self-destructive and like extremely sad and just like a lot of like really low points. Um, the feeling of not being there, I'm constantly in gratitude for. Mm. And then a huge thing is the ability and availability to play music and play music with others and get to play music for other people listening, which I feel like they're just as involved as I am in making the music in the moment, like playing live music. That is a place where I reach that state of, you mentioned, soft, what did you call well, it? Well, Maria calls it soft fascination. Right. But that concept of soft fascination, I mean, I certainly experience it when I'm in the forest. Like I literally start tripping within moments of being in the forest. Nothing else involved but the brain. Like everything starts going vibrating and like just like, whoa. But like I also get that when I'm playing music, especially when I've practiced enough to make it so that I'm not thinking at all. It's not accidental that you're having the same experience in these two types of settings because that's actually a function of how uh, nature and music impact the default mode network of the brain and are kind of like, how these experiences catapult us out of our ordinary way of association making and pattern recognition and kind of the default 
thinking and, and scientists have found that the three most reliable ways of catapulting us out of this standard mind are music, time in nature, and psychedelics. Mm. So you're actually, it's an embodied similarity that you're just describing. Because mm. it does feel the same. Yeah. What are some of the elements that you mentioned there, Maria? Pattern recognition? What do you mean when you're, when you're talking about that? Well, we are pattern-seeking animals, and our, our uh, ordinary mind is accustomed to finding pattern in order to make sense of reality. And the more we seek and find a particular kind of pattern, the more we see it out in the world. It's like these grooves that get set in in our ways of thinking. And they, of course, limit our experience of reality because they are just our template mm -hmm. for reality. But they get reinforced the more we practice them. And the question is, how do we get out of our ordinary minds and, and look beyond our frames of reference, beyond the grooves? And there's a line in the magic about looking for the thing to take me out of my mind, which is exactly about that, because the experience of wonder is one of unselfing, stepping out of the habitual self and the, these grooves. And we have to somehow make that leap in order to experience this other way of being. Let me ask you this. What, um, cause I'd like to try and put into words what this feeling is that music can do for us, but mm. give us goosebumps, transcendence, wonderment, all of these things. Like, can we talk about what that experience is like and in some more detail, but also specifically for each of you, which song, which pieces of music do you identify as having triggered that response first? Well, I can tell you my earliest memory of it. Yeah. So when I was 11, I entered the Bulgarian National Math Academy and I did some very rigorous math for a few years, like European Math Olympics, just total kind of geek stuff. Like badass. <laughs> but our school had a choir and I was in the choir for one year. And every year the choir had a concert at the Bulgarian National Hall of Music, which was this majestic old European place, unlike the rest of kind of rundown Bulgaria. It was like marble and hanging chandeliers mm. and velvet chairs, just incredible level of grandeur that I'd never seen before. So we show up there. We had rehearsed in the school basement and in the classroom. But once we stood up on that stage, it was a Christmas concert. And we were performing Beethoven's Ode to Joy, the Ninth Symphony. And something about hearing it come out of our bodies like our not just hearing it performed but hearing it through the body in this majestic space under the lights and all these people wearing their best clothes and all the kids that have spent their days and nights doing math suddenly doing music i felt electric with it i felt like it all made sense in the same way that a perfect theorem makes sense and now I'm thinking about Margaret Fuller's wonderful line that um, all things are comprised of music and mathematics. And that was, I felt that so deeply then. And I, I grew up without religion, but that felt like a religious feeling. Yeah. Electric. Okay. I'm going to add that to the list mm -hmm. of adjectives. And what about you, Joan? Well, it's funny because I'm pretty much going to tell the same story, but with my details. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so I, there was, a this thing called all state orchestra oh, yeah. where they pulled the best players supposedly from all over the state. And then you got together for like three days and you rehearsed and then did a concert. So 
freshman year of high school, I went and the conductor was this guy named Ben Zander. Mm -hmm. And he's like been around New York. You know him? I just saw him in Vancouver talking. Yeah, okay, okay. So Ben Zander is a genius, like with, especially with, I mean, I'm going to call us children because we we were, you know, 14 to 18 or whatever. And we, first of all, he chose the most dramatic, perfect Zeppelin-like piece (laughs) for us to play. The first movement of Mahler's second symphony, the Resurrection Symphony. And that is literally, if you listen to it, there are just guitar riffs all the way through. It's just so metal. It really is metal. It's like it's like glam metal. And he, first of all, infused in us the idea that we could play this just as good as the New York Phil. He just said, you're as good as anyone else as long as you are committed and then a huge thing he did is he taught us all to breathe together. Mm. So he would say, okay, ready? He would cue us to hit the first notes and it would sound a certain way. And then he was like, okay, that was good. So everyone, when I'm doing this, everyone breathe, inhale, hit it together. He did it a couple times, and then he said, you do it without me. And so the collective breathing together, we all hit it perfectly on because we know that when you're breathing with other people, I mean, then you're all one, one life form. To, to create that piece of magnificence all together, all working together, you know, we all had to be committed to one another as well. And to to create that sound together, that was the first time I understood what people said God felt like. Mm. Yeah, because I, too, was raised in a non-religious family. And I was completely transported. Time stopped. We were just in the music. Then I was just like, I'm, I, this is what I'm doing for my whole life. Yeah. Well, what you're describing about this, the breathing and the bodies, I mean, the, there's a reason music is the most transportive of the arts because he, when he was encouraging you to do that, he was actually tapping into the way that we experience music. So when the sound waves enter the eardrum and then the cilia on the inside of the eardrum begin this neurochemical Rube Goldberg machine that takes it from the auditory cortex to the anterior insular cortex, and then it begins interacting with input from your lungs, from your heart, from your gut, from your vagus nerve, and becomes a full body experience, and eventually goes to the hippocampus, the internal GPS that places us in space, and this feeling of being inside the music is when it hit the hippocampus, and you were literally in the space of the music. Mm. I mean, and this guy, Ben Zander, he's, I've only seen him speak, and, mm-hmm. and actually, he conducted a very corporate audience in singing Beethoven's Ode to Joy, which was just phenomenal in German, in German. Uh, but he is he exudes a level of enthusiasm is too small a word. He is just electric with love of music 
out of his whole being and just radiates. And I can imagine how for high school kids, this yeah. was just the drug. Oh, yeah. 1984. It was completely transformative to right now. I'm talking about it. And you like, had to compete with Van Halen. Oh, yeah, completely. That's right. <laughs> so these things that you're you're talking about, you're talking about, like, dare I say, a spiritual experience for both of you. And I mean, in addition to measuring how music is processed, how do scientists quantify this response, the otherwise ineffable things like a soulful experience or a spiritual experience or and I want to just back up and say that Maria has written two essays, um, and I'm sure there are many more, but the two main pieces that sparked the idea for this episode for me was one on in response to a book called Awe, um, and I'm forgetting the author's name. Dacher Keltner, he's a scientist out of UC okay. Berkeley who has spent many years studying awe in okay. 26 different cultures around the world. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so let's please, let's start with him. What can you tell us that you learned from his book? Well, I, I will say I've been following the research on awe since, uh, I would say, the mid-2000s. There are other people who have done work around that, and Jonathan Haidt has a wonderful book about it from about a decade ago. But what's interesting is you said quantify. Now, one of the hardest things for us humans to accept is that every thought we're having, every feeling we're having is the product of electrical charges firing between neurons at 80 feet per second. I mean, we are these, you know, you cut out, cut off the electricity and it all goes away. The thought, the feeling, consciousness, it's gone. So this accepting that we are biomechanical in this way is hard on the ego, right? It's hard on all of our beliefs about the soul and the spirit and all that. That said, in the past century, we've developed some pretty good science, an infant science, it's only been a century, but pretty good ways of measuring how these signals travel, where they land, how much they light up of the brain in which areas. So these are all quantitative things, right? But we are so far from qualifying we have nothing for qualitative. We have just language to fall back on, which you're talking about the ineffable. The ineffable literally means that which cannot be expressed, cannot be uttered. And language is, always, I mean, language is not the content of thought. Language is the vessel into which we put thought. And the vessel is always going to be smaller than the stuff it needs to carry, which is why poetry, for example, is so effective because through metaphor, it gives us language for things we can't quite express and why great song lyrics give shape to these experiences that we can't quantify, but we can begin to try to qualify with these more abstract tools. This is where the crossover comes in with the other piece of yours, the one that talks about soft fascination and then there's a real emphasis on our relationship to nature. Yeah, I mean, I already mentioned kind of the gist of it. Soft fascination is just a term for the quality of mind that we attain when the default mode network kind of quiets and we begin making these unorthodox associations beyond our ordinary thinking. Now, I, I'm i a writer, but I do most of my so-called writing walking. So most of my conceptual stuff and ideas and all of that, I walk a great deal. And when I spend a lot of time in a forest where I walk three to four hours a day, m most of the creative stuff comes while I'm moving through the forest. The rest, what happens at the keyboard is just mechanical transcription. That is a state of soft fascination that 
I achieve uh, being in nature and, and not at the desk and not at my ordinary way of reading and thinking and analyzing. It's beyond the analytical mind. It's this other kind of porous associative mind that happens when when we're listening to music or being in nature. I'm curious, do you record your ideas while you're walking in the voice memo or something like that? Or you just remember? No, no, very rarely, because I find that the moment you capture it, you ossify it. And I like to continue developing and letting it take on its own life. This is more for my long form book writing than for these shorter essays. That to me sounds like a meditative state you know, that you, that you get in while walking, Mm -hmm. you know, like just a state where, yeah, you do allow, it just, things are allowed to enter that like all of our attempts to combat the sounds of car horns, like the, the, the like anticipation of, for me, I'm really sound sensitive because I've been standing in front of stupidly loud amps for a long time. So that now, like, actually car horns do feel like sort of getting impaled with a knife. (laughs) So, like, to know that that's not going to happen and, like, be in a state where I can actually just allow things to relax because living in the city is insane, you know. So when I can get myself into some sort of space, and usually it's late at night when I'm a little bit, I mean, what I call dumbed down. Mm. A lot of the stuff of the day has been taken care of. Hopefully I've exercised. So like I've gotten that junk out and like sort of like moving all the chemicals moving around. And then I've like done stuff I have to do out. And then I'm sort of like a little tired helps me. A little tired and a little worn out helps me just calm this thing enough to allow it does feel like the music to come through me Mm -hmm. i wonder how much of that do you find uh, because as you were talking i was thinking about the what it is about walking in the forest how much of that the dumbed down and tired feeling do you think is just the falling away of the critic and the judgment voice If, if that's like the front line of assessment for anything as judgment and analysis when you're tired the front line falls away so there's some other more receptive thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right about that. Like that's been tired out or been used up. Used up, yeah. Yeah, during the day, yeah. Um, I do also know that when I, like I have written songs when riding my bike. Oh, me too. Oh, without songs. Yeah. Though, but oh, I want to hear on the new bike. songs. Um, <laughs> but like riding the bike, which we both do a lot, I can get myself into a space where I can where I can hear music happen. So, so the motion, I I very early in life, I was still around the time I started my site, so seventeen years ago, I figured out that when I'm in motion, something happens. And then I learned that Beethoven used to compose in the back of a horse-drawn carriage. He used to walk a lot. Uh, Mark Twain would pace and dictate. Like a lot of people seem to need this bodily motion to kind of move them through their own minds or out of their own minds. Mm. For me, I, I absolutely, it's so predictable. The, when I am stuck, I literally set myself in motion and it, it resolves. Mm. Well, there's that expression in uh, 
a fellowship that will go unnamed, which is change a thought, move a muscle, move yeah, a muscle, uh, change a thought. That's right. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, in the romantics too, the romantic poets were all about walking in nature oh, yes. and composing poetry. Yeah. Wordsworth and his sister, Dorothy. Yeah. They were all about that. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Matt, how you feel most comfortable composing music. Like, how does it come the easiest to you? What kind of state of mind are you in? Or like, what do you do? You know? I have to be in a great mood, you know, and I kind of mm -hmm. want to out myself. I'm a little reluctant to do it, but out myself is an exception to the rule because mm -hmm. the last album I made and put out in 2017, it took me six years to do. And I remember, Joan, you and I were having breakfast once, and in a three-month period, you'd written 50 songs or something like that. And I was like, Jesus Christ. I, You know, like, I can't... I, I was having a really hard time finishing lyrics, because like you, that's the hardest part. And so what I did was I endeavored to go on this 36-mile walk on what's called the Coleridge Way in the West Country of England, where mm -hmm. supposedly Wordsworth and Coleridge did all this stuff. I have never been more prisoner to my own like circular thinking mm -hmm. and, and uncreative. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That I ended up just yeah. jogging. I just jogged. I was like, I got to get out of here. Wow. Um, it's not to say that I've not experienced great moments of ecstasy in nature and making music. But for me... I, I just find I have to be in a great mood listening to music, to playing music. It's all associated somewhat with euphoria. You know what I mean? Um, that's that's for me. And I know that that's... Are you not able to create out of a melancholy kind of... I guess, do you, do you in any way subscribe to Martha Graham's thing about the divine dissatisfaction that's necessary for making art? Yes, but not when I'm in its grips. You know, I think like it's a general disposition that's part of the whole picture. But for me to actually produce and create, mm -hmm. I need to kind of get there. It doesn't mean I necessarily have to wait for it to happen, I don't think. But um, mm. uh, one thing I wanted to ask was because and this is a big one and this is a big one, I think, among the three of us. You talk about the importance of making novel connections in the brain and that that can be a consequence of breaking out of the pattern recognition, things like this. What can you tell us about how that works in this context with music? Well, I can't speak specifically to music, but I think I know creativity in general is a combinatorial force. So we take all these fragments of existing stuff, ideas, memories, experiences, influences, uh, the totality of life that we've carried with us, these building blocks we've assembled, and we combine them into something new. And that is the creative act. That That's that's what it is. And so the more you have in the arsenal, the more diverse pieces you have to draw on, the more interesting this combinatorial cathedral that you're building in your work will be. Mm -hmm. And every everything we make we make with the entirety of who we are to this point everything we've lived everything we've touched everything we've lost all of that comes into even the littlest thing we make and that's just associations between fragments of experience that we glue together to make a thing yeah and it's actually something i see made manifest in your your work 
Each essay is peppered with links and references to other pieces, either that you've written or that somebody else has written. There's artwork. Um, you know, I, and so I would like to hear you speak a little bit to the importance of, of pursuing connections in general. I mean, I'll just say that for, for me, like having started this show, it does kind of scratch a creative itch for me because there's like a puzzle to it of just being like, how can I bring these two people together, these two ideas together, these two disciplines together? It kind of increases my, my faith in general that like mm. any two things can be bridged, I find, you know? Well, not just that, but they can be bridged and become larger than the sum of the parts, right? That having each in isolation is not the same as having the two in dialogue and magnifying each other. Right. Could I ask you to riff on that a little bit more? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think some of the most interesting things in life happen in the intersubjective space between people, between ideas, between disciplines, between ways of thinking. And the creative friction in that boundary between subjects, between people, between opinions, between points of view is create something that wasn't there before, right? Mm -hmm. That's bigger than the isolated containers that are touching each other. And I think what you're doing with this show, for example, I mean, it challenges musicians to think of their own lyrics mm -hmm. in a completely different way that in turn invites this other, this other, uh, I mean, th they're all lenses on reality, right? And music through the language of feeling, science through the language of truth or pattern and all of that. And having the two lenses next to each other just gives us a more closer to 360 degree view of reality. And isn't that the end game of everything to just see life more clearly, be more fully awake to the wonder of it all, which, which is the totality. Wonder can't be a fragment. Wonder is this yearning for totality. The whole banana. The whole banana and the orange next to it. Well, there was a, I don't know, We Brian Cox was on the show and he was quoting Feynman or Oppenheimer, one of those guys who said something. Oh God, I hope it was not Oppenheimer. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> it must have been Feynman then. I think he's, maybe he said the, it's the scientist's responsibility to hold two competing ideas simultaneously in order to get a fuller picture of nature. Mm -hmm. and, and beautiful and true. I mean, isn't it just like this is like sort of like a, a, a small version of the basic idea of just communication, honest communication. It just it always works. If you're isolated, you ain't going to feel better. If you got outside and like experience life, talk to people, you're instantly going to feel better. Human connection is what we need. If people are, are willing to actually listen to each other and not just fall back to the things that they've learned or think they know or whatever from their experiences, but actually are open, things get worked out really easily. Yeah. It just feels like sort of like a more broad version of what we're talking about. When you're playing music, when you're playing music with other people, 
Could you describe what it is? Because it doesn't happen every night, but those moments when you really feel like you're communicating with another musician and you're not using words, obviously. Because you've played with so many people, many of whom are real heavyweights. How do you describe that feeling when that does happen? Yeah, I mean, it has so much to do with listening to one another. I mean, I feel like that's the thing. If, if, if everyone is listening to one another without ego as much as possible, um, like just magical, literally magical things can happen. And you can play so much better than you ever thought you could. I mean, I experience that so often. Like I'll pra be practicing on my own and then I'll get playing with you and Parker and I'll play so much better. My rhythm will be so much better. Like I'll just like the chord will fit in there just like in this perfect way that just doesn't happen on my own. Yeah. So, I mean, we all lift each other up. It feels like the collective experience we've had in music gets combined and like just raises to this other level of of performance i mean i have to mention this thing that that tony allen has said which i i love this so much um tony allen is um is um you know master drummer like created afrobeat with fela kuti from nigeria has worked with so many so many incredible artists and done all sorts of kinds of music and I got to play with him and make a record with him a few years ago. And he says... It's an amazing record. Yeah. It, thank you. He says, actually, I mean, and the, the title of that record, The Solution is Restless, is sort of like talking about quantum stuff there. The Solution is Restless. Just to, the Solution is Restless, mm -hmm. just to throw that in there. Um, <laughs> but he says, it's not my job to... to it's not my job to keep time. Like, don't look at me to keep time. My job is to connect, to plug in to the universe. Mm. So, I mean, that it feels like that. Like, if everyone's committed to plugging into the universe at that moment together, you can just make things that you never thought was were yeah. possible. Like it's already there. Yes. I mean, we've only got a couple minutes here, so I'm uh, slightly reluctant to open this can of worms. And before I do, Maria, do you describe yourself as a physicalist? Huh. Well, I've never heard that word before, so I, I, I couldn't describe myself as that. But I will, I will borrow my friend Alan Lightman. He's a physicist and a poet. I would borrow his term spiritual materialist. Okay. How do you define or how, how does he or how do you define that? Well, I define it as I am a materialist in the sense that I know we are these electrical impulses and, and consciousness, which is our entire lens on reality, is a biological, it's a function of our biology. And it ends when entropy takes its course and, you know, we, our atoms disband, it's gone. And at the same time, with that same transient material consciousness, we are capable of having profoundly moving experiences that we could call spiritual mm -hmm. like what Joan described in that youth orchestra or for me watching a total solar eclipse these are 
things so far beyond what we can quantify, right? But they're very much real experiences and they end when consciousness ends. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm curious though, when you hear Jones describing what Tony says is when musicians have this, this experience of tapping into perhaps something I'm approximating, but maybe something that's already there. What do you make of that? How do you interpret that? I think we all live with a yearning for a larger belonging, for being part of something larger than ourselves. I think we create it. Mm. I think Tony Allen created the universe he was plugging into. And, and as were all the musicians he was with, that we actually create that belonging. It's not something to be handed down by some god mm-hmm. or some external entity. But it's something that we're all a part of. And we have a certain responsibility to, mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. Well, what about you, Joan? <laughs> um, yeah, so when I was recording with him, it was my bass player friend, Dave Okumu, and I were jamming out this thing. And then Tony he was sat down and... And we, we were feeling really good about this groove that we had going. Mm-hmm. And then Tony started to play. And literally, it was as if we levitated off the ground. Mm. Dave and I looked at each other, and we had to just try to not cry. Mm. Because it was like this other whole thing that that we were in awe of. And it, it just felt like, you know, double dutch. Mm -hmm. I played, you know, I did a lot of double dutch and like you would just so often not make it in and the ropes would fall. And it's so complicated, like getting in, getting your feet right in the right place at the right time so that the ropes keep going. You know, double dutch is a double rope, jumping rope thing. But when you actually got in there and you know got in got in with the ropes and like they didn't fall and you're just and it's spinning around you like i imagine the universe happening it was elation and whenever anybody talks about the end of anything i just always say and then what mm. i mean what how can you say anything ends mm-hmm. i mean it seems to i don't know yeah it's just always, and then what? What's beyond that? We don't know. Yeah, and, and Double Dutch is such a great analogy. There's a, a yeah. great, uh, there's a book. Have you heard of this book, The Games Girl, Black Girls Play by Kira Gaunt? She's a... Kira's amazing, yeah. Yes. No, but... Ethnomusicologist, but she makes the point. She argues oh. that um, hip-hop, hip, early hip-hop lyrics were inspired by games like Double Dutch and you would just hear them oh, on the street. of course they were. But it's like that sense of flow and like locking in the pocket. Flow. You know? Totally. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. I know you're trying to wrap um, it up. I, I don't need to. I mean, um, is there anything <laughs> else that, that we want to we wanna add? I'm so grateful that you are... that. I mean, I just was there when you were like thinking about doing this and this idea so resonated with me. Yeah. And I'm just so glad that you you're doing it. I'm just thanks, I mean I just wanted to say that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. And Maria, you were just 
acknowledging that we have a responsibility to this thing that we're this dare I say again ineffable thing that we described that started talking about with the Tony Allen story and um, you know I just want to say mm. thank you to both of you I think you both live your lives so meaningfully and it helps inform your work and you share it and I'm so grateful that you brought your own wisdom and experience to this podcast thank you for making space for this conversation what a generous thing to do my pleasure be sure to check out joan's latest albums the solution is restless cover two and live stay up to date with maria's daily writing at themarginalian.org and on social media at maria popova Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram. Social media manager is Bailey Constis, and digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Josh at Brooklyn Podcasting Studio for his help recording. If you liked today's episode, the best way you can support us is to give us a review, tell a friend about the show, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.